0: Welcome to the Antioch-Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch-Austin, please check our website at antiochatx.com. My name is Liz Griffin, and along with my husband, J.D., who was just up here earlier, we have the privilege of being pastors here at Antioch-Austin. In addition to that, we have the privilege of being parents to four little world-changing kiddos. So my daughter, Sophie, is 10. I have a son, Tate, who's 8 years old. And then we adopted twins, Kevin and Ines, who are also 8 years old. So to recap, that's one 10-year-old and three 8-year-olds. So as you can imagine, life is exciting many times. I don't know if any of you all are parents, but for whatever reason, Sunday mornings seems to just be a little extra exciting with kids. It's just like they know, okay, we're heading to church. It's time to lose my shoes. And meltdown and whatever, but it is a joyful, beautiful chaos in our house. Um, this week was a little different, though. The kids went to camp at Pine Cove Camp in the City. Um, if you have kids, I so recommend sending your kids next year. It's awesome. It's they go during the day. They learn all about Jesus. They make friends. They have tons of fun. So they all four did that this past week. And so since I had the days kid-free, I decided to tackle some projects. And I had noticed that our um, we have a, like a home office, and the closet was slightly messy. And by slightly, I mean incredibly. So I had noticed it. Now, if I notice that it's messy, it's telling you something. Because I do not, J.D.'s like, yes. Because I don't notice details. It's, like, it's not that I don't want to put the clothes away. It's that I don't even see them on the couch is I don't know if anyone else is like that, but I literally don't notice it. And like this is so bad true story. I didn't even realize JD had a mustache. So true until a few weeks ago, different ones of y'all at church were like, What do you think of JD's mustache? And I'm like, he has a mustache? And then I look when he gets up to preach and I'm just like, How long has that been there? I don't even know. Like, so I am not your detail person. Legitimately, if I was not married to JD, our house would just be stacks and piles of things that I'm gonna put away later that I then forget that I have. So, anyway, not a detail person, but even I noticed that our closet was a little out of control. So I'm like, you know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna like get my game face on and I'm gonna dive in here. So I, like Monday morning, I open the closet door and I get ready to organize and I find gold. Pure gold. I found boxes of all of my old journals. Now, I don't know if y'all are journals. That may mean like nothing to you, but if you are a journaler, you understand like the euphoric feeling when you find your old journals because it's like everything about your life is in there. So I actually, true story, I have to now this week clean the closet because I pulled all the boxes out And read them. So now in our office, it's even more messy because all my journals are just out in piles. (laughs) So I didn't, you know, tackle it. But I had a great time reading all these things. And so, I mean, we're talking journals from high school, from college, all the way up till now. In fact, I found my very first journal. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen this on my Insta stories. But this is my journal from fourth grade. So, I mean, I had, like, a a ball reading all the old stories, all the old things. I mean, I'm, like, I'm a verbal processor. Actually, no, I'm an internal processor. And so I have to, like, write it out to feel it. So, like, the pages of my journals are just full of all the highs and lows, the hopes, the dreams, starting in fourth grade. Now, you can't see. This is a heart with little ballet shoes in the middle. And at one point, it had, like, the little heart lock. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, so no one could read my super secret, private, deep thoughts that I had in fourth grade. But I am actually going to read you all a few entries. Do you all want to read some of the hopes and dreams of little fourth grade Liz? Okay. Well, first of all, on this first page, these are the names of various boys I had crushes on, and I'm not going to show you that page. But here we go. This is from, I'm going to age myself here, 1991. July 30th of 1991. This is what I had to say. I want to be a rancher when I grow up. I'm going into fourth grade. I'm nine. And then I sign my name as if I wouldn't know who wrote it. But I like, you know, I did. And okay, true story, that was like legit. I spent several years on this dream of wanting to be a rancher, which if you know me now, is kind of funny. Um, Like I don't even like camping. I don't know why I thought I'd want to be a rancher, but I did. And so, in fact, this like dream was so deep in my soul, it actually evolved into that I wanted to become Amish. Like, this is not, I'm not even kidding. I learned to quilt. Like, I was so determined that this was gonna happen, and I was gonna be like a Mennonite or Amish or something. I learned to quilt, I learned how to make jam. Like, I would get fresh berries and make jam. I mean, I was hardcore. Like, this was happening, guys. This, this was gonna happen. So anyway, I won't tell you how long my Amish loving dream lasted, because it went longer than it should have, but it was, it was real, guys, it was real. Okay, next entry. This is from November of 1991. Fourth grade, remember? Shanna went skating with Mike, her boyfriend. I really want someone to like me, but nobody will because nobody ever has. <laughs> it's, how sad is that? First of all, I just want to go back to little fourth grade Liz and be like, no one needs a boyfriend in fourth grade, and Shanna should not have gone on a date in fourth grade. That's just stupid. But... I, like, want to just go back and be like, oh, Liz, it's going to be okay, right? It all works out in the end. But, I mean, the struggles were real, no matter what age I was. But it was just so fun going through all the old journals, like, reading. I mean, obviously, as I got older, the things in them matured and adjusted, and it's all about where I wanted to go to college and the type of family I wanted to have and cities I wanted to live in and things I wanted to do and become and, things in ministry and like profession and grad school and just all these big things and in the ins and outs of life were in all of these pages that I spent the week reading. Um, but then I also noticed that alongside it, there was this theme, which is that most of the things in these pages didn't happen. They were unfulfilled or they were completely uncooperative. Have you ever had like a dream or a hope like that where it just does not cooperate, you're like, okay, now we're going to do this. And instead of going right, it goes left. You're like, that's not what I meant. Let's try this again. And you're like, all right, now we're going to like really ramp up and I'm going to launch this business. It's going to move forward and then everything dies down. Or you're like, okay, we're going to pull back and that's when everything pushes forward, right? Like sometimes dreams do not cooperate. And I have a lot of that. Now, sometimes it's like, obviously, I should not be Amish. So that's a good thing that it didn't work out. But some of the dreams are actually really good dreams, friendships that we want to go the distance, things we want to see in our families or in our marriages that we want God to do in our lives or, you know, professional or financial goals. God is clear in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. So it's clear that this concept of dreaming with God and believing for the future is a biblical one. But there's also a reality that a lot of times it all goes south. And the thing you're hoping for, believing for, dreaming into just breaks down. It all falls apart. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What do we do when the dream breaks? What do you do when your life, your marriage, your health, your finances, your professional goals, your career, what do you do when it's just sitting in a million pieces and you have tear-stained cheeks because the pain of it all just feels too much? What do you do when the dream breaks? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to anchor in Matthew six thirty-three this morning. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You know, ever since I was in high school, I wanted to adopt. I grew up traveling. My dad, when I was little, he would take medical mission teams into Central and South America. So I grew up going with my family into Guatemala and Mexico, um, and we'd do these two-week uh medical clinics out in villages. And oftentimes we would stay in orphanages when we did that. So I was exposed at a very young age to this reality that there's a lot of kids who do not have families, as well as back in the States, a lot of friends of mine who had adopted siblings or um, did foster care, things like that. So all growing up, this was just a very real, normal part of my life. And so all through high school, it's like I wanted to, and you know, I don't I don't ever remember this clear moment of God speaking and saying, hey, you need to adopt, right? Sometimes I think that the dreams, the things that God has for us, we tend to um, almost over-spiritualize it and feel like it needs to be this big, like, riding on the wall kind of aha moment. But that's not what this was like for me. It was just this innate thing that I knew I wanted to do. So JD and I, we get married, and we knew that we wanted to have a big family, and then we had Sophie, and then our son Tate was born. And we began the discussion of, okay, how are we going to add to our family next? Do we want to adopt? Do we want to have more biological kids? And we prayed about it. And at this time, God had spoken to JD about adopting as well. And so we, you know, we decided, Tate was nine months old, and we decided, okay, we are going to add to our family through adoption. And I was so excited because this is the thing I've been like waiting my whole life to do. And so we start the process. We start the dialogue of, okay, what is this going to look like? We look at domestic options. We were living in Seattle, Washington at the time. What does it look like to adopt domestically, internationally? As we talked to different social workers and agencies, you know, we really felt like we were supposed to adopt multiple children, preferably siblings, from Uganda. God had been really clear. JD had just been to Uganda. And it was like the green light. Let's go for it. So we start the process, and when we started the process, it was supposed to be nine months, right? That is what the average time was. We had friends who had just done it, and so we we're like, okay, we can do this. Nine months. We've got that, um, and so we do all of our home study, all of the paperwork. We get it going, and then our social worker kind of goes MIA. She ends up getting fired, so then it took a whole long time to get this thing called a home study done. Way like twice as long as it's supposed to, you know, and I'm sitting there being like, they said it was going to be hard, you know, I can do this, I can handle this. Well, nine months later, we end up moving to California. So we get to California, and we have, finally, we have all of our paperwork in order, we have all the stuff together, we get to California, and California says, hey, look, we know that you have this approved by the federal government and all. But we're not going to accept it because it wasn't done in our courts. Now, if you've ever lived in California and, like, tried to get a driver's license there or anything, you know what I'm talking about because they are very particular about how they, yeah, how they want things done. And they did not like the way Washington State did our paperwork. So then there we are. We're a year in at this point, and I'm, you know, we're having to wait. We were in California for six months, and so we're like, man, this is another six months onto our timeline. Here we are, past a year. This things not seeming to go anywhere. And, you know, when you start the process, you know, the, the green light, the dream's going, it's working, it's on its way, and you're all pumped and excited. And then, like, it gets longer and longer, and you're kind of like, I hope no one asks me for an update because there's no new update. The update is I'm still waiting. Nothing's happening. God doesn't seem to be moving. But we finally actually get things moving again when we move to Texas. I move to Texas, things Um, like, pick up, and so we're like, all right, here we go. And Uganda was finally moving. We get to Texas. Our paperwork's going. Then Uganda has a court delay, and they say, oh, no, we're not going to do any adoptions right now. And so we finally were, like, we were number two on the waiting list. This is two years in, and we're number two on the waiting list. And then they go into this. um, They shut down the courts. We're not doing adoptions right now. So then we have to go back to waiting. And about three months later, I get a phone call from our agency. And, like, they never – uh, call you it's always email, so I'm like, Oh my gosh, yes, this is it. We got matched like we 're number two it's finally our turn, and they say, actually, there's no movement, but we're starting a new program in Ghana, so we want you guys to think about getting in on that program as well, um so that whether Uganda or Ghana matches you first like you'll just you'll just go that route and so j d talked j d and I talked about it, prayed about it, okay. Yeah, you know, my heart is getting a little sore, a little discouraged, but I'm like, all right, there's some hope, right? Something's moving forward. So we get in line to adopt from Ghana and Uganda. Whichever one matches us first, that's just the way we go. So another two years go by. And let me just point out, numerous people that I knew were bringing kids home, Right? but not us. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you start something before everybody else and they seem to be finishing before you, right? And I'm like, this isn't fair. We started this two years before them and they're bringing a kid home. Like, why, why are we not getting matched? Why isn't this happening for us? And I, I was just wrestling with all this discouragement. And then finally, four years into what was supposed to be a nine-month process, I'm sitting at my desk in Waco, doing some work, and I see a phone call from our agency. I light up because they never called. This must be great news. I, remember, I like remember it was 4.35, and I answer the phone. Five minutes later, I hang up the phone, and I just erupt into tears because it wasn't good news. What the agency called to say was that they're closing down their Ghana program completely. There's no way we'll be matched with kids from there. They're just shutting it down. And the same basically for their Uganda program, that they're not doing any more adoptions. All the money, all the time, all the emotion, all the finances, four years of our life. And they're like, hey, it's off the table. It just isn't going to happen. You're going to have to think about something else. And I just was gutted. It was like everything in me popped, and I just sobbed. I was like, four years, and I have nothing to show for it. And so, you know, the dream fell apart. It was in a million pieces that didn't make any sense anymore. It was all the, but God said, but God did, and all these things, and how is this working together, you know? And so J.D. and I were like, what do we do? And we actually didn't know. We spent time just crying and praying. We're like, God, what do we do? You know, is this one of those things where it's, God, are you trying to tell us that we're not supposed to adopt? Because this seems to be ridiculously hard. Like, is this you saying, hey, abort the mission? Or is this, hey, endure? You know, things aren't always easy. And just because it's hard doesn't mean it's wrong. Like, is this a, hey, keep pressing in, keep leaning in? And so we felt, you know, as we looked, we knew we wanted more kids. So do we, you know, adopt domestically? We put everything. We were back to square one. Four years in, full circle, back to square one. The measure of disappointment, pain, and confusion was very high at this point. So we pray about it, and we feel like God's saying, hey, we're still supposed to adopt from Africa. So I get online, and I write down all 54 countries in Africa on their own page, and I spend two weeks researching the adoption laws in those countries to see what door could possibly be open. Like, where do we go and knock next? And there were three countries that were options, Madagascar, the Dominican Republic of Congo, and Burundi. And we feel a peace about moving forward with Burundi. Now, we hit plenty of snags with that, but four years in, we start all over again from scratch. And it was two more years before we brought our twins home. We hit election violence. We hit mortar shells going off outside their orphanage. I mean, we hit evacuations, all kinds of roadblocks and dead ends we hit him, and the dream that was supposed to be nine months was six years. And I think the natural question that I get asked a lot is, "Why do you think that was?" You know, was God's, was the timing off? Did we not hear God? Why would He speak Uganda if you ended up from Burundi? You know, all the different things about why is it that that happened? And you know, I it used to bug me, and I used to wonder about it, and then I decided I really don't care because in the end. We ended up with the right people in the right place at the right time. Right? When it all falls apart, we can trust that God is going to put us with the right people at the right place at the right time. You know, I have my own theory. They were six years old when we adopted them. We started the process six years ago. So from the year they were born, they've had people praying for them, praying for their safety, that they would have food, that they would have shelter, that they would be loved. You know, and maybe it was Uganda because Burundi wasn't an option and God knew that these kids needed people to be praying for them and interceding for them. And there's probably lots of things I don't even know. I don't understand why it was so hard. But I know that in the end, God was faithful and he's good. So when it all comes apart, when it all breaks up in our hands, we seek him. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And I want to take a few minutes, and I want us to go a little bit deeper into this scripture. Okay? Can you bear with me? Can we do that? Awesome. One of my dreams is to be a professor, so you can just pretend that that's what's happening right now. Um, I want to break down this scripture. Because when I was reading it, and I was thinking, that's really interesting. I don't fully understand what that really means, though. Like, it's great to sit and talk about, but when you're sitting there trying to figure out what in the world are we supposed to do about an adoption, what are we supposed to do about a marriage, a business decision, a grad school, like, what does this have to do with that, right? How do you actually apply that? But I want us to start at the very beginning, which is the word but, okay? Now, I don't know if you remember grammar from elementary school, but I'm going to give you a review. And that is this. But is a conjunction. It connects two seemingly opposite statements into one sentence I went to school but I didn't get a degree I'm hungry but I'm not going to eat it connects two things that are seemingly opposed to each other so when we see the but we know that whatever God's saying the response is but seek these things it doesn't seem like it should go with whatever preceded it so let's look at what happens before this scripture In Matthew 6, it's all talking about worrying and, you know, what am I going to wear? How is this going to work? How are the details going to come together? It's all the little pieces of life and worry. And the verse directly in front of it says, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But first seek. See, God knows the things that you're desiring and needing, all the details that have to happen. He knows those things. He knows that you need them, but first seek. See, the solution isn't the natural one. If it was the natural solution, we wouldn't need the word but, right? The natural solution is I need all these things. This broke down. The pieces don't fit together. The dream has collapsed. Therefore, I need to fix it. Therefore, I need to solve the problem. I need to figure out where the money's coming from. I need to figure out all these things. And it's not that God says that we don't figure out those things, it's saying, but first seek me. But first, seek me. That conjunction is imperative. And if we actually look at the passage in the original Greek, we get a lot more insight into the heart of what God is talking about here. The word zeke is zeteo. Now that is a present tense verb. It is a continual now action. I think we have this misunderstanding sometimes when it comes to hopes, ambitions, goals, dreams with God that when we seek, it's like this one-time thing. Like, God, what should I do? You give me the answer. Awesome. Thanks. Got it. High five. I'm moving on, right? But that's not what this word is in the Greek. It is a continual action. It is a step-by-step, day-by-day seeking. That we walk with God every moment of living the process out. And I get asked a lot, You know, how do I know if the thing that I'm pursuing, how do I know if it's God? How do I know if it's just me and just my desire, if it's what God's calling me to? And this is just a built-in security that it doesn't actually matter, because if we seek, he'll autocorrect. We walk with him every step. He's the original autocorrect. If you try to write something into your story that's not what he has, and you are in a posture of humbly seeking, you don't have to worry about it, because he'll let you know. He'll redirect, right? God redirected us. We ended up not being in Uganda. We ended up adopting from Burundi, but in that process, it was a ready, seeking and God auto-corrected so that we ended up in the right place at the right time with the right people. We seek continually every step of the way. The next word for kingdom is baseu and it translates to the idea and the concept of God's rule and reign. It's his dominion. It's his sovereignty and you know what you find in a kingdom? If you seek a kingdom, do you know what you will find? A king. You'll find a king. When we seek his kingdom, when we seek his dominion, his realm, his authority, we find him in the middle of it. We find him in the middle of every situation, of everything that's broken down around us. When we seek his kingdom, we find him in the middle of it. And when we understand who God is, what he's up to, what he's doing, this amazing thing happens. It's like our eyes lift up out of the weeds of our current situation, out of the weeds of the divorce we're going through, out of the weeds of the unemployment, out of the weeds of not having the baby we're believing for, out of the weeds of singleness, out of the weeds of whatever it is that you feel stuck in, that you feel is your dead end, we lift our eyes up and we see, God, what are you doing? Beyond just this situation, what are you up to? Who are you? What's happening? You know, and I... I, got convicted in this adoption process that to some degree I stopped being a good mom to my two biological kids because I was so concerned with the family I didn't have yet, right? And I stopped saying, God, what are you doing in my family right now? What are you birthing in the kids I have now? What are you doing in my marriage? What's happening here in the present tense? Because when we lift our eyes up and we see a broader kingdom landscape, all of the priorities shift a little bit, right? When you're just looking right here, your priorities are only right here. But when you lift your eyes up to the king, his kingdom, what he's doing, your emotions, your next steps, all of those things shift, and he redirects our priorities. The next word for righteousness is decaos. Now, we don't really use the word righteousness very much, to be honest, right? You kind of only use it when you're talking about God, or you're reading a Bible verse, and to be totally honest, most of us probably would say, I actually don't know what it really means. Let me tell you what it means. And the English, it's, it's, a, it's actually a legal term. So in the U.S. court system, you have a guilty verdict, and you have a not guilty. And not guilty doesn't mean you didn't do it, it just means that you can't prove that you did it. This Greek word for righteousness is the third option. It's the equivalent of an innocent verdict, of a there's no way you could be at fault. It proves innocence. God's righteousness is his flawless, blameless, clear character. His pure innocence in every situation. And when we seek that, we are transformed by that. When we seek God, we're transformed by him. So God's not just saying, hey, come find me. Come find me in the kingdom. He's saying, come find me and come be found in me. When we seek his righteousness, we are impacted Buy it. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Honestly, when I was sitting here reading about the passage, I thought, why does this have to do with this whole passage? Like, how does this connect to the other dots? And you know, when everything breaks down and goes wrong and ends up in a thousand shards that slice you no matter what step you take next, we are bruised and beaten down, and we began to doubt ourselves, right? You do something, and you're like, man, that's a failure. Am I really the woman for the job? Am I the man for the job? Do I have what it takes? Can this really be me? Can I really see this thing happen? And when we seek his righteousness, there's two key things that I've found. The first is that we take on his identity, right? His righteousness, that innocent verdict. When we are children of God, we're also heirs to his kingdom, And we can participate in who he is. And it's no longer, oh, I'm the rejected one. It's no, 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 you're the chosen one. It's no longer I'm a failure. It's "Uh uh-uh. I am actually more than a conqueror. It's not someone who's lacking anymore. It's someone who can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, right? When we seek his kingdom and his character, our identity changes. The way we see ourselves changes, And it also builds a bigger foundation. You know, sometimes, not always, but sometimes the reason things break down is because our foundation wasn't big enough to hold it. Right? Big God dreams require big God foundations. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes our foundations just need to get a little bit bigger. And when we seek God and we find him, we're transformed and our foundations grow. You know, when we seek him, when everything falls apart, the whole but first, why is it first? Why but first? And I think it's because more than a solution to our problem, more than how to fix it, how to get out of it, how to put all the pieces back together, we just need him. We're hurting. It's sore. It's weary. It's tender. And we just need him. We need him to remind us who he is. We need him to remind us who we are. Before we try to fix it, before we try to move on, we need a God who's going to step in and heal us. Who's going to step in and redeem us. Who's going to take the broken things and make us new. Who's going to build up our confidence in him and in who we are made to be in his image. Because without that, we don't have the courage and the strength to keep going, to get up and try again. And we remember that our identity is actually not found in the goal. It's not found in the mission. It's not found in the relationship status. Our identity is not found in your bank account. Our identity at the end of the day is found in him. Regardless of what dreams you feel like God's put on your heart, the things that he's wanting to do in your life, your identity, your value is in him. And in seeking him, we strengthen our faith. Because sometimes when we seek him, it just seems like he's so easy to find, right? Have you ever had those moments, those seasons in life where you seek him and it's just like your days are dripping with his presence? You just see him everywhere. You pray and your spirit gets stirred and you you listen for his voice and you hear it and it's awesome. He is manifesting himself in our daily life. And other times, It can feel like I'm asking, I'm not hearing, I'm praying, like there's nothing. It's like he went dark,
1: total radio silence,
0: where'd you go, God? This is in a million pieces, where are you? But in those hidden moments where it's seemingly God is hidden, he says, hey, come seek. Come just a little closer. Because when he's so obviously manifest, it's God just jumping into our reality. And showing us who he is, and we need those moments. But there's also times where we seek and it feels hard to find. And that's because God is drawing us into his reality. And he's saying, Hey, come with me. And when you seek and you feel like you're walking blind, your faith is growing. He says, Hey, come up to the heights. Come find me up here. Let's take new ground. I love showing up where you are now, but I want you to go somewhere new. I want to take you somewhere deeper. I want your revelation and your faith to get down into the marrow of your bones so that you are unshakable, so that you can bravely take on the next hill, take on the next thing that God is calling you to. We seek him because we will find him and we will be found in him. And our responsibility no matter what's going on with the dream, no matter what's going on with the mission, is always the same. We don't need to over-evaluate what went wrong, what did I do, do I have sin in my life, all those things. Yes, we want to address those things. But ultimately, we seek him. We find him. And when we do that, God does what only he can do. Because when we look at our life, sometimes we say there is no way on earth, no way in the world this can make sense. There's no way this can get fixed. But guess what? Our God does not function on earth, right? He has a heavenly ability. It doesn't matter if there's no way on earth, it doesn't matter if there's no way you or I can figure it out. He can. He is supernatural. And everything is possible with him. So when we seek and are found in him, he will line out everything else. He will be faithful to his, to do his part. He'll put all the pieces together in a way you never even imagined. Now, I know that in a room like this, there's people who feel like dreams have gone haywire, that you've hit a dead end, that your marriage is broken down, that there's a physical diagnosis that makes everything just turn on its head. Other people who are like, I'm at the beginning of this. I feel so full. I feel like the manifest presence of God is everywhere I look. God's doing big things. He's moving. And that's awesome. And no matter where you are today, we all have something to seek. And if you go ahead and just stand with me, I believe that God is wanting to show us something today that we all seek. No matter where you are, no matter if you're on a high or if you're on a low, God's saying, hey, come seek. Come find me. Come find me in it, in the joy, in the pain. Come find me. See what I'm going to show you. See what I'm going to do. Seek me. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness. There's one key point, though. All of this comes back to a king. To seek his kingdom and its righteousness, you have to know the King. And if you don't know Jesus, if he's not the Lord of your life, this isn't going to make sense. Because God loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to earth. Because we have sin, we have wrongdoing. He is the only one with that righteous, innocent verdict. And he says, you know what, because I want relationship with you so much. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sin so that we could have access to him, we could have relationship to him, we could partake in his kingdom and in his righteousness. And I want everyone to just bow their heads right now. And if you would say, man, I want to know that king.
1: I want to know the God that
0: makes all things new. Would you just raise your hand? Thank you. If that's you that wants to make a statement today, just repeat after me to yourself Jesus, thank you that you are King, that you are Lord. I give you my life and all of its messiness and all of its brokenness, and I just choose to follow you. I choose to be led by you. Take my life, God, and lead me where you will. And if the prayer teams can go ahead and come up, if there's any other needs in our midst, maybe something that you're needing, some endurance for the dream, faith, to risk dreaming again, or something totally unrelated, we'd love to pray for you this morning. And I'm just going to pray over all of us, and then we're going to worship and respond. Jesus, thank you that you are moving. Thank you for the destinies in this room. Thank you for the dreams in this room. Thank you that you are faithful, that you know every single story. You know everything hidden and seen. And I ask God that in hopeless places, you would breathe hope, God, that you would breathe courage to dream again, to love again, to trust you again. God, every way, that we have trusted the voice of our failures over the voice of you. God, would you come and would you rewrite that? Would we see ourselves the way you see us, God? In Jesus' name.